0: Please note that this content contains sensitive information regarding mental health and topics related to suicide. What's Underneath is a CastBox original produced in partnership with Studio 71. CastBox is the fastest growing highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android where you can find all of your favorite podcasts. You can listen to What's Underneath wherever you get your podcasts, but we hope you'll give CastBox a shot and see for yourself. and welcome to what's underneath the podcast that will inspire radical self-acceptance through empowering you to embrace what's unrepeatable in you i'm lily mandelbaum and sitting next to me is my mom elisa goodkind and we are style like you in our new podcast we are going to expand the types of intimate unfiltered conversations we've been having in our viral video series the what's underneath project each week we will interview diverse nonconformists about their relationship to style self-image and identity being radically honest without shame and holding that honesty with compassion is self-acceptance. The intro that I would like to do for the um, incredibly beautiful inside and out... Ria. <laughs> um, who we're interviewing today, who is a artist and a poet, an extraordinary um, artist. You know, it's not only her like incredible external beauty and personal style, which is so unique, but also the very, very honest and brave communication that she is doing on Instagram and in social media with her own personal struggles and pain, especially around the areas of mental health, which is definitely an all too untalked about taboo subject and something that really needs to come to the surface because we all struggle with mental health and one way or another i know that i do and and had to have had a very long road with anxiety and wounded child syndromes that still haunt me to this day and that i'm still working on at 60 years old so i'm very very excited to be doing this podcast today with her and yeah i feel very fortunate that we get to meet very very special people like ria
1: thank you for so. giving me the space to talk this is that was such a lovely introduction thank you so much i also really like the the wounded child syndrome that's a really good that's a i'm just gonna start using that from mm. now on because what i do you really like about it um i just so much of who i am like the summation of my adulthood mm-hmm. is really rooted in 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 my childhood Mm -hmm. and the wounds that I acquired in Mm -hmm. childhood Mm -hmm. that I'm still kind of like wading through Mm -hmm. and, and you're, you're 60 and you still are. So, I mean, yeah, it's a process and it's not, um, people have obviously been really concerned about my discussions online about my mental health. And I get a lot of messages where they're like, I hope you're feeling better now. And it's like, how do I explain or communicate that there are days where I'll feel better, but the struggle itself is going to be a lifelong thing. It's mm-hmm. never going to go away. I'm always going to have depression. I'm always going to be mentally ill. And the trauma is not going to disappear. You know. But right. I, I just have to find a way every day to um, learn how to bring vitality into my life. And to be gentle with myself, and mm-hmm. and all of that. But it's just it's just
0: weird when um, I guess people expect you to just get better. Mm-hmm. I really I really really relate to that because when I am honest on social media with personal struggles and you know anxiety, which is a bit the big issue for me, and I noticed that response to, Like, hope you feel better. I've noticed it with you, Lily, as well, when you talked about your own struggles, um, emotional struggles. Um, people always say, hope, you know, get better, feel better, hope you're better or so sorry to hear. Like it's the flu or something. And like, you won't have, and I, and it does take it. I find that I have to to be totally transparent. I find that a disappointing response because I feel like I'm trying to connect in a way that I'm not going to get that response. Like Mm. it's going to be more, I don't know what, Exactly. But just not that. It it goes along with, I think, what the whole overall problem is, which is it's really not above board and shame-free to have um, depression and anxiety and um, wounds and struggles um, and pain. And meanwhile, I would be pretty hard-pressed to find anyone that underneath it didn't.
1: I also, I've noticed that when we do talk about mental health, um, our conversations are often restricted to depression and anxiety when in reality people suffer from like a wide array of mental illnesses and there are personality disorders or mm-hmm. a friend of mine recently disclosed to me that he's schizophrenic and mm-hmm. I always just assumed he was a bit odd that made me realize I probably know lots of people mm-hmm. who are schizophrenic and they don't feel like they're in a position where they can just come out and say that to people because the of the stigma, stigma and is. what kind of, like that's horrible mm-hmm. to carry that with you mm-hmm. all the time and yeah i'm
2: yeah i also think it has to do on some level with just like the obsession in our culture with like end goals of like mm. like everything is about like getting to a goal or like right. a, a, and so being in a journey that's just like winding and ever present and like
0: up and down, up and down, and up messy, and, down and, messy. Yeah. and it's
2: every day something that someone's dealing with is not something that we're like taught to like mm. know what to do with. Mm. Like we're always like, oh, to get love yourself is like as if it's an, a goal that then like you'll be cool for the rest of your life if you get there.
0: And I think there's just so much fear. I mean, obviously, this is all there's so much fear around it. When I have to say from my own experience and where I am now, there's so much suffering and so much pain, but it's brought me to such to an amazing place at this point in terms of transformation and in terms of really feeling in touch with what's really inside all of us beneath it all which is in my opinion this endless strength and Mm. light and you know you can call it you know god or the universe Mm. or whatever it is but uh, you but you have to work really hard like it's this is not this is something that I mean, it's taken me this long to feel that I'm in a place where I can really rely on my this internal power and to find that power. Mm-hmm. and yeah, it's come with a lot of darkness.
2: So can you talk about um, something that you're kind of, like that's making you feel excited in your life right now, just like? Well, a pep in your step
1: I, yeah, um I can talk about small things, yeah, like, um I recently uh started wearing saris mm. in public just casually and um because I, I I'm a little estranged from my culture just because I'm estranged from my family, but it's it's I was born in Bangladesh, mm-hmm. and my earliest memories are like playing in the dirt in Bangladesh, and it's, I've, um, it just saddened me a bit that I kind of lost touch, you know, whether it was, like, growing up, um, just the embarrassment of being from there, the embarrassment of, like, not being, the shame of not being, like, white, um, I kind of wanted to just erase that part of myself.
0: When you were here or there? Here. Like, when When I was just growing
1: up here, um. How old were you when you came here? I was just a year old, but we went back and forth for a bit, Mm um, uh, And so, yeah, I, so when I moved to Berlin, I had, because your focus isn't on survival, like paying rent, because it's such an affordable city, I was able to really just live. So one of the main things that I did was look up YouTube videos of, like, Bengali aunties cooking and, like, giving you instructions on how to, like, make all the dishes that my mom used to make me, and I just made them. I made like every, all of my favorite dishes My that my mom used to make me that I used to love. Um, and I learned that I can do it. Like I learned how to cook really good. I, I'll say it myself, like really good curry from scratch within like months. And it's a power that I didn't even know that I had. Mm. And cooking brings me so much joy. Um, I love feeding people. I love it. Just I love the communal experience. I love everything about it. So that and wearing the sari Mm. in public. Like I went to the standard yesterday with some friends and we had some drinks and I was just in this really like um, vibrant blue sari and I got a lot of looks, but I like it just felt really nice to just be in like this space and wear something that my mom would wear Mm. and be like, it's, well, it's not a special occasion. This is just what all my ancestors wore. This is what everyone back home wears. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't need for it to be a special occasion in, mm-hmm. or, in order to, like, put it on, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: So that totally. was nice.
1: Yeah. Does your mom still wear them? She does. She, she wears them, like, every day. Yeah.
0: And when did you stop wearing them?
1: Um Well, saris are for, um they're for women, like, mm. you know, so... I never really had the chance. Like, you, it's not something you would wear growing up. You would wear, like, soar or, you know, like the three-piece with the veil and the, the dress and the pants. But I, I never really wore saris until until now.
0: And so um, I just want to say, just mention the, something about the food. But that's, you know, that's really, it strikes me as something that's very healing to the wounded child is to feed yeah. yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. Well, like yeah. correctly what feels right yeah
1: because um sometimes i i would you know i'd get nostalgic and i would really really miss my mother's food but the problem is like she and i have a very strange relationship and um my mother also going back to mental illness is um obviously undiagnosed but she's definitely very mentally ill has always been mentally ill um So my relation, she's a very kind of toxic person to be around and doesn't realize it, like is absolutely clueless. So I I figured the best thing to do is just to maintain a distance. Like I love her from afar, Mm -hmm. but it's best not to, it's best not to go there. And. So that that was the best thing was like recreating all of the food that she made for me and realizing I can do it. I can nurture myself in ways that she didn't. I can feed myself and also be gentle with myself in ways that she wasn't with me. And it was a very poetic, kind of powerful hmm. feeling.
0: How did that manifest? Can you talk a little bit about your awakening to your mother's you know, treatment of you and and Mm. you're separating from that and finding yourself and, you know, finding yourself aside from that?
1: Well, it was a very gradual, a very gradual, strenuous um, process. I think the most, I think one of the most interesting things about getting older is kind of seeing the mortality in your parents' faces. And uh, she's not the same woman that mistreated me, you know, when I was a child, like she's a little more she's frail she's more soft-spoken um has really I don't know kind of just softened up throughout the years and I don't have any resentment I just I I just have a lot of sympathy I have a lot of compassion for my mother I she wasn't educated like never went beyond primary school um was married to a man that she met like the day before she got, you know, the marriage, basically. And she speaks very broken English despite having lived here for um I think like maybe thirty years now. Um just because they live in a very insulated community with other Bangladeshis. And my mother was also like mistreated by my father and Her children were strangers. Like she was raising children in this foreign territory, and they were becoming unlike her. And she had all these dreams and hopes. And um, I guess didn't you know? I I, it really saddened her to see her firstborn become so American, which isn't shocking. You're her firstborn. Yeah, I'm the I'm the oldest. Mm -hmm. And um, in that vein, like I do, I don't know. It's
0: it's a little. It's hard. It must be very hard to come to terms with recognizing that you didn't get what you needed or that you were mistreated or, you know, like yeah. that's well, just a very hard,
1: because when you're, when you're the firstborn in an immigrant household, um, if you're a first generation immigrant and you're the oldest, um, it's your responsibility to navigate this very white world because my, I didn't get any handouts. Like my mm-hmm. parents didn't know mm-hmm. how the system worked. They didn't, you know, applying for college, doing everything. I did all that on my own. um, I should to teach my siblings how to do those things. Um, so not only are you navigating the confusion of having two very contrasting identities, but you're also the first one to do it. And you have to kind of share those resources with your family mm-hmm. as well. And But you're, you're, you're their parent yeah, in a lot yeah, of ways. Yeah,
0: exactly. Right. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about your own process of coming to terms with the, is it the lo- you know not getting the love the, the unconditional love or I don't want to put words in your mouth but mm-hmm. whatever, it was where you felt mistreated and then how you've, um you know just sort of your process of dealing with that mm-hmm. and like when did that happen and
1: well um maybe I
0: think all I know within it's ongoing, no but
1: yeah but all within the the last couple of years I would say is just. Having the capacity for forgiveness, not even forgiveness but com- I guess understanding coming to grips with the fact that my mother is not an evil person. she's a, you know a multi-dimensional human being who is very mentally ill and comes from a place where mental illness is never. there's not even a word for it. So just understanding that understanding her position as a woman in this country and just yeah forgiving her.
0: does that yeah. does that go along with forgiving yourself?
1: Of course. Yeah. And then also like realizing there's nothing to forgive yourself for that you're just surviving and you make mistakes. And as a teenager, I I was like harsh to her, you know, because I had all this piled up resentment and I never really considered how life is for like how life's like for her and the difficulties Mm. that she goes through. And how completely isolated she feels from her children and from everyone around. I alone. Mean, you know, just alone. And,
0: yeah, yeah. When you say mental illness, like, what do you mean by that exactly? I think that would be interesting. Um, So I
1: think my mother, I mean, she definitely has depression. I know this because so much of my, like, childhood memories consist of, like, my mom just either lying in bed a lot or going to the windowsill and just like drinking tea and kind of crying to herself and like a lot like every other day and never talking about it of course and she was always tired like constantly tired just always fatigued i'm amazed that she did all the things that she did do because i mean there was always she would cook three times a day feed all of us pick us up from school um And if you're a really depressed, debilitatingly depressed person, those things require so much energy. And she used to do that. But the other important thing is I'm pretty sure she is like, uh, she has narcissistic Mm. personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other, that's Mm -hmm. a whole other animal. And that's where the, if that goes undiagnosed and unacknowledged, that can create a lot of toxicity Mm -hmm. in your life with, Your loved ones with just everything, right? Because you can't love, right? You can love, but you can you love in a very selfish way. So, So like, what would be an example of that? Growing up, my mother really didn't grant me my own self. Mm. I was an extension of her. Mm -hmm. So, it was a very conditional love. Like, Mm -hmm. if I did what she said, then she would love me, and if. She asked me to bring her the remote and I brought the wrong remote. I'm, you know, then I would be the worst child. And it's literally, it's not even an exaggeration. It would be Mm -hmm. small things like getting a remote or going back to the the immigrant, the oldest immigrant child's thing. Mm -hmm. If we got a letter in the mail from the government or the insurance or something and she can't speak English, so I'd have to read it to her. But I'm a 10 year old child, so that my knowledge is very limited about how these things work. Uh, but then she would get really frustrated with me for not understanding. and angry actually. like, I brought you to this country. Don't you even speak English? Like you know, like just
0: and then it'll spiral Blame into me. like,
1: yeah, and it'll spiral into like verbal
0: physical emotional abuse mm-hmm. um, in all kinds of ways. It's so under the radar how how the destruction mm-hmm. and and also, I was once, on a plane with a therapist, uh, I, I don't even remember what, I remember what they, they said, but they said that it's not healable. Like you can't, narcissistic personality disorder, I am 99.9% sure, is not something that can be corrected. It's like this, um, it's well, so deep. Well, what
1: can be corrected is like your
0: behavior
1: and your interpersonal interactions, like how... <sighs> Because it is a personality disorder. If your personality mm-hmm. is disordered, there's, it's a, it's extremely difficult to undo that. But you can control how you treat others, mm-hmm. and you, you do have a compass for what's right and wrong. And that's something like my mom didn't have, right? Because mm-hmm. she didn't they have don't the resources. have resources. Yeah, they no, don't have she- a
0: compass, right? Yeah. Well, if you have the disorder. Um, I wouldn't say that.
1: Because no. I, I think it's a little I think it's a little more new. I mean I think people like they're very intelligent people who have mm-hmm. narcissistic yeah they, they can they know what's right and what's wrong. I think wrong they're generally
0: very they're known to be and this might be a real generalization yeah. which is why we're talking about this because right. we don't want it to be a generalization and we want Well
1: to the be. other thing is like we're talking about stigmatization and mm-hmm. mental illness, so I don't want to stigmatize yeah, right. NPD. Well, that's why. Is right, is right, right, why right. I, that's why I think yeah. it's
0: good to talk about it exactly because yeah. actually yeah. maybe
2: that's one that's kind of like demonized. It is. Yeah. I think it is. Yeah, yeah.
1: As I, as I, I don't know ones, anyone like, in my life yeah. ever who's ever come out to me and said I have this. Right. right. And nope. I definitely know some people. You know. Right. So. But just
0: just for the sake of bringing it into the light and giving it understanding. Yeah. From what I understand of it. It's something that somehow where you're not given as a really, really, really young child, like you're not mirrored back to um, as a a warm or a loving parent would do, like mirror Mm -hmm. back to a child and they become, they develop these masks and personalities to get what they need Mm -hmm. and uh, and ultimately and eventually lose touch with who they are. And then there's this incredible sense of, frustration um because there's this per, you know this orig- very 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 hurt person way mm-hmm. underneath it all mm-hmm. that is really stuck in getting approval and right. kind of these toxic negative ways that's the hardest yeah. that's the hardest thing is like I always knew that my mother
1: was in unbearable pain mm-hmm. um through and through I mean it just radiated from her and onto me and mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I mean by having compassion now as mm. I see that now and how can I possibly hate her if mm-hmm. she's just a person that's suffering.
0: Definitely. And then that just hurts you. Yeah. So how do you yeah. deal with, um,
2: like you said, you guys, you're a, a sort of estranged at yeah. this moment. Like, how do you deal with it? juxtaposition or what like the, the between inside forgiveness that you feel and mm-hmm. like non-resentment and all of that and compassion with holding that boundary like is that something that you struggle with or is that something that you feel kind of at peace um, with at this moment or
1: I haven't spoken to my mom in like 11 months now mm-hmm. um she just doesn't know my number so if is she wanted any- to reach out there'd be she would have no way of, and that's of doing that for that's because I think it started because I had no way of explaining to her that I was going to move to Germany. Mm-hmm. She has a very simple mind, and you have to consider like where she's from and like her level of education and just the conditions of her upbringing. But you know, things like especially for immigrants, things like aspirations are a weird thing to them because for them, life is all about what's pragmatic, what's functional. So if I say. I want to move to Berlin cuz I I'll have time to make art and it's not so expensive. She'll be she that's not something she'll ever mm-hmm. really understand. And the other interesting thing about my dynamic with my mom is there's a huge language barrier. Like my mother speaks uh Bengali, but in Bangladesh there's like tons of dialects, probably hundreds of dialects. Mm. And and it's such a small country too, which is like really mystifying, but so the specific dialect that she speaks, it's it's um I was always ashamed of it growing up because I guess it's considered to be like a lower class dialect. So this goes, you know, hand in hand with me, like trying to whitewash myself because I was embarrassed where I was also, you know, embarrassed of like my parents' dialect. So I watched a lot of like proper, you know, Bengali television shows. And I tried to I just tried to speak like, quote unquote, like proper Bengali so I can't even speak the same Bengali as my mom Mm. so when I when we do talk and she doesn't speak English Mm -hmm. it's all very basic like very basic Mm -hmm. like what did you eat today this is tasty thank you you know Mm -hmm. it's like it's not emotional emotional. I would never be able to articulate how I feel any kind of greater construct any kind of idea form thinking Mm -hmm. uh we just won't be able to we're just not capable of having mm-hmm.
0: that and she's it sounds like she's not capable of, of in any way of meeting your needs or meeting your no emotional and needs. she so. never has when i first was hospitalized i was
1: 15 when i was discharged they had they had me start um a therapy so i had a therapist for the first time but when you're um, a teenager i don't know if this is still the case but your parent has to accompany you to mm-hmm. your therapy sessions and um, so she would come, but she didn't really understand the concept of, of what therapy was. Like she thought I was being disciplined or because I was disobedient or, you know, whatever. And right. she's like, yeah, you're going to therapy because you're bad, you know, like that kind of thing. And um, she would use my therapy sessions with my therapist to cry and get attention or seek attention from my therapist, mm-hmm. like seek sympathy. And if any abuse was addressed by my therapist, she would just say no, she's lying. You know, kind of just gaslighting me. So that's another NPD trait: is just like you, like her using my therapist to gain mm-hmm. sympathy and attention. And well, like being a child. Yeah, like, being a child. Like, and I was the child, you know. But I never. She, but you had. To I be. was never granted my childhood, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah can you talk
2: at all or do you mind talking at all about like that hospitalization and what had happened <clears throat> when
1: you were 15? Um, I had a few on and off mm-hmm. when I was a, when I was yeah. a teenager. That, you said that was the first It was time. all for like su- a suicidal ideation. You know, like I would tell a friend that I was suicidal mm-hmm. or they would read a poem that I wrote that was really emo or something and mm-hmm. they would tell the guidance counselor and they would be like, no, I think, you, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So that's how that happened, that particular hospitalization. And I ended up staying for for two weeks at Elmhurst, which is mm. the worst, mm. the worst hospital. So well, I didn't tell see... Tell us, why is it the worst? Um. So, well, first of all, I can get into Your th- like, the psychiatric the host- yeah. institutions of America and why mm-hmm. they're so horrible, at least the public ones, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. most of us mm-hmm. only have access to. And um, so what they do is they put everyone together. They put people who have been cutting class for a month. They put uh, kids who... <laughs> got into a fight they put you know just so putting like suicidal and kind of like homicidal people in the same room right. and giving them this basically the same treatment mm-hmm. it's not even it's not really a treatment it's to me it seems like you all need to be on your best behavior and if you do what we say then you can get out of here you so know? it's punitive it's punitive it's absolutely punitive it's not rehabilitating um the only thing that's rehabilitating is kind of you maybe you appreciate the outside world a little more you know it's conditional yeah when you leave. yeah it's conditional yeah love yeah like exactly you're just coming from so exactly it's just exacerbating exactly exactly so i remember the first time like <laughs> leaving the hospital two weeks later seeing sunlight and like feeling the breeze and just thinking wow this is amazing like mm-hmm. why did i ever think this is bad and obviously mm-hmm. that was a transient feeling but right. yeah you know.
0: if you're enjoying what you're hearing please subscribe and give us a good rating so the powers that be can keep this podcast going it would be great if we could talk more about your feelings of suicide, or um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to put any words in your mouth, so you can just express mm-hmm. whatever that is, what that is for you. We're made to believe that this is oh, oh my God, this is the most unusual thing. Nobody else has these thoughts and feelings. I think that it's also a part of the human experience, and and people can go in and out of feelings or thoughts of suicide. I think it's um, probably not as unnatural. I think most people have thought um, about it. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to say. I just don't want to like yeah. and 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 it would be great if you could elaborate on that. For I mean okay, suicidal ideation is something that I
1: It's like a normal thought. It's like what will I have for breakfast? Right. You know, it's like it's 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 a very I've had this thought for a a decade and when I post about it people I guess people don't realize the difference between suicidal passive suicidal ideation and actually Actual intention. And I think people don't realize that people who are depressed have suicidal ideation almost daily. I think the worst feeling for me and my depression is like the numbness, just like the complete lack of anything, lack of motivation, lack of the disassociative uh, experience that I have with my depression is probably hands down the worst thing. It's like not feeling like a person most days um feeling very disconnected from my body kind of being a passive observer participant of my life and just watching things unfold and feeling like i have no control over over anything and it also like leads you to kind of become a performative person if you spend a lot of time depersonalizing not feeling like you're in your body but you still you still want to be like a good person a fun person to be around Mm -hmm. so I think I like developed this skill I don't I don't know I don't know if I would call it a skill but you know when I was really early on but just giggling a lot I used to just like giggle compulsively Mm -hmm. um um and I Mm have these like I've had these like laugh lines since I was a teen Mm -hmm. and um and it's just yeah um like I think I'm a very excitable person. I don't think people. I don't. I don't know if that comes across on my social media, but I'm <laughs> like definitely. I can be very outgoing. It can be very excitable, and sometimes it confuses me because I'm like, well, I feel dead inside. So where is this coming from? And you know, that's also. It's it's all very confusing.
0: It makes me wonder, like, about your art. Like, how mm-hmm. does that play into feeling dead inside? It's kind of a
1: disregard for the self, but I still see and value the beauty in life and people and interactions and relationships and art. And, um, like, I think one of, one of the things that really opened my eyes to the world growing up in a very dysfunctional, abusive, poverty-ridden home is, um, film. Like, I think film really opened my eyes and kind of saved my life, I think, Right. And when yeah. did you start,
2: like, making your own art and poetry um, and stuff?
1: Like, in middle school, mm-hmm. I was bu- I was bullied a lot. I was bullied a lot. and For what purposes? Just for, uh, for everything. Like, I didn't have any friends. Like, a- another tra- trait of my narcissistic mom is she completely for- forbade me from, like, ever socializing. socializing, going out. Like, you know, she had to have utter control over my life, mm-hmm. so any conversation that i had without her she had to be present she had to observe she had to pry you know um i wasn't allowed to have my own phone you know nothing no, no kind of autonomy at all so i just i just didn't have social skills for a lot of my life and i also you know we were also poor so i didn't have like good clothes you know if you live in a society that values you like based on how you look i didn't have that and so i just was bullied for everything just how i looked how i smelled you know Uh, everything and I had this English teacher named Miss Collymore she was from Barbados and she was like the most lovely radiant confident long-necked human being ever and um really the only teacher that saw that I was being bullied so much every day like relentlessly and actually talked to me about it and this one day after class, she just pulled me aside and she said, "Do you know that you're beautiful?" And I thought that was like a funny thing. I, I no one ever told me that before. You know, I hear that all the time now, but as like a eleven year old, twelve year old, no one's ever no one ever told me that. And she would always like support my writing. Anytime mm-hmm. I wrote an essay, she would leave like really kind of elaborate comments that no other teacher really bothered to make. And mm-hmm. she just made me really really interested in the English language. And mm-hmm. I, I um. I, t- I like began to take writing very seriously because she was like the only person because my parents never validated me. Like they never said good job or this is how to do this or like, you know, um so this was the first like adult figure in my life ever who was like encouraging me and telling me that I'm good. And so maybe it's because she was the English teacher, but I was like, I want to start writing like a, it was to kind of cope with all the suffering that I was experiencing um, and then I started, yeah, I started writing poetry then and did it like almost every day. And then I would show them to her, um, like at, not not as an assignment. I would just show her my writings and my musings and she would be happy to look at them. And
0: How did the writing change th- things for you emotionally?
1: This is kind of off topic, but it explains why writing was so important to me. So because we grew up poor, I never had my own room. Like, I never had my own room until I was 18. Um, like, we lived in a railroad apartment, like the five of us, just with one bedroom. And so I lived in, like, what would be considered the living room. And in order to get to the bathroom or to get to the kitchen or my parents' bedroom, you had to go through, like, my, quote, room. There were five and kids. There, yeah. Oh, well, no, no, no. no. It was like, just, like, five of us total. So three kids, including me and my parents. So I never got to, like, create my space Essentially, and that's it's wh- one of the reasons why I value aesthetics so much now and objects so much now is because I never really had that. And so growing up, I would always like try to customize my room and I would like I would draw a lot. I would um, because and especially because I wasn't allowed to go outside or have friends. Really, all I did was like I would make clothes for my like 99 cent store knockoff Barbie dolls out of construction paper. Like I would just like glue little skirts and and little blouses and it would bring me so much joy and I think that was like that's really all I did like eighty percent of the time and um so I would do I would make all these drawings but I would come home from school and they would be in the they would be in the trash like my mom like I don't even think it was like evil like I think she just didn't didn't it. understand yeah. like that's not something she it's a under- pervertist yeah so, yeah yeah like why would you 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 have to study like what is this <laughs> yeah. you know um. And that's a it's a very like also an Asian immigrant household kind of const- or uh, everywhere, I really. everywhere I think it's everywhere yeah. I think it's
0: a fearful immigrant yeah. everywhere across the board. Yeah. People who have had hardship and yeah. have come here yeah. as the land of yeah. milk and honey yeah. and, or somehow the yeah. idea of that or something. Yeah. So how how much did um religion play into all of this? Oh, yeah, a lot. So much mm-hmm. actually. We haven't even talked
1: about that. Yeah, um so my parents, yeah, they were very conservative. I wasn't even allowed to kind of let my hair down. Like, my hair always had to be in a ponytail. Religion had so much to do with my upbringing. I was very devoutly religious until I was about 14. How did that it manifest? Would, it? Um, I would pray multiple times a day. It was that kind of mindset where I thought, like, if I kissed a boy, I would have to marry him. You know, that like, that kind of thing. And um, I had a very spiritual relationship to Allah. I, I talked to him every day. Like, he... He was the only being that I can speak to, that I can communicate to. It was such a comfort to have that religious spirituality until I grew out of it. But um, uh, it was also really stifling because I, I had um, parents who were Muslims but practiced it in a, in a very questionable, obviously, like patriarchal, sexist way you know, and mm-hmm. the, one of my like moments of awakening was like, it was a, on July 4th, we had this tradition where all of my extended family, we would have a picnic in Long Island. And, um, so this one picnic, I was like 13 and I was just wearing, um, kind of like a, a baggy t-shirt and, like just normal jeans like they weren't form-fitting or anything but my mom was like you need to wear a veil on top of your t-shirt and I was like why would I do that like there's no skin at all and she said because your uncles are gonna be there and I remember just being like well like if my uncles are looking at my chest at their like 13 year old niece's chest that's probably on them like I don't have to you know, I, there was something wrong there. And I don't know why it is like that moment in particular that really gripped me because there were so many other instances of very similar things. Ever since then, I kind of just started rebelling more and more, which obviously really upset my
0: parents. But um, And how did that manifest? What were you doing to rebel? I
1: started dressing myself in the ways – that I wanted to express myself and like in the ways that I felt comfortable and I would get beaten every day because of it. I would get yelled at, you know, slut shamed. Before I'd even like had my first kiss, I was slut shamed by my mom, you know, just because of what I was wearing. Like her, she would always surveil my body. Like my body was an object for her to constantly surveil. She had this she was obsessed with it like she was obsessed with my body and that's like that's something that's another whole thing is just mm-hmm. her obsession with how i presented myself and
0: that never, your body is like yeah. this is this is this just by the nature of it just being that the body your yeah. female body that you're immediately
1: sexualized yeah as as a child you know immediately sexualized as a child and it's interesting you know um Considering, I mean, in her eyes, she was probably just shielding me from from men, but it's it's just funny because the person that violated me the most was my father, who, like, sexually abused me. And that's where the hypocrisy comes in, is because my father was equally, like... uh, Don't wear this, don't wear that. Yeah, don't wear this, don't wear that. And he abused me when I was a child, and that's the biggest irony, really. And and so yeah, I developed so much bo- so much body dysmorphia. Like it's endless. Like I I still really don't have a proper image of what I look like. I don't think anyone does, but I have a very distorted view of myself. What do and you think? Yeah, I into like intellectually, I know that I'm attractive, but I don't, I don't. There, it's very rare for me to feel it. Mm. It's it, it, there's a dissonance between how I feel and how I know I look to others
0: when your teacher told you that you were that you were beautiful pretty or beautiful beautiful that's obviously something that's really stood out for you her saying that to you like Mm -hmm. what why what what happened at that moment
1: I was cynical even then like I don't even know I didn't think that she necessarily meant it but I appreciated that she said it because no one just no one has ever had ever said something like that to me before and it just made me feel like I was seen. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I felt seen, mm-hmm. really,
2: is what happened there. Mm-hmm. And so you said, so you were saying that you started rebelling and wearing what
1: you wanted to wear, but then mm-hmm. getting beaten up. What other ways did you like sort of rebel? I would just not come home mm-hmm. on time. I sort of started making friends and I would go out with them and. Ugh, another NPD mom thing my mom and I told you I didn't have a cell phone so what my mom would do is she would <laughs> she would um, trace all the calls that I would make from like the landline phone so she would like redial and then find all the numbers of my friends and she would save them and this one day I remember during lunch in high school I had to like call my mom to let her know that I would be going to the movies and I was dialing her number on my friend's phone and it showed up as like crazy lady. And I was like, "Um, why is my house phone number saved in your phone as crazy lady? And she was like, Oh, like she called me one day, like really hysterical, like crying. And I was like, what? So it turns out my mom had been like calling the very few friends that I had and um, telling them to stay away from me, like crying hysterical because in her eyes, they were taking me away from her like her possession of me was being threatened and I was like learning who I was outside of her and her dominance over me. So
2: was the, so, and then when you, so you said that your first like hospitalization was 15 and Mm -hmm. that was like right when you were starting to rebel. So can you talk about like what you, do you feel like there's a link between that? Like what sort of Of course.
1: I mean, I kind of, I I was rebelling, but I was also kind of like, I guess reckless. Mm -hmm. Um, And also my depression started, manifesting like right around 15 um I was, always, like, I was always like I was always a very gifted they, they call I mean I, I am totally against this term but I was a gifted child and then when I started high school um and I do not know like I didn't know the terminology that I could use at the time but found myself going to the nurse's office like every day just to like sleep to, just to take naps on like the leather couch but I did it every day I would skip class and just sleep. I mean, now I know it was because I was really depressed, but I, um, at the time it didn't, you know, I just felt like I was being a bad student and all of these expectations that I had as, you know, a child of immigrants to succeed and excel in, you know, academia and to make my parents sacrifice worthwhile. It was all, it was all really crumbling so quickly, like so quickly. Um, so, yeah, I stopped. I went to like a very um, elite high school where everyone was extremely smart. And so I was kind of the odd sheep, you know, because I would I would cut class and where like we had a, we had a very strict dress code as well, where you would get demerits if you showed your shoulders or if your skirt was like two, in, like more than two inches above your knee. And I would get demerits every day, like every day like candy like every day and I couldn't go to prom I couldn't do anything because of these demerits and I didn't care I would just I would keep I would do I
0: did it every day I really really didn't care you were fighting to be yourself you were fighting to know who yeah. you were yeah you know? and I didn't
1: know who I was yet but I kind of wanted to find you really out. shove myself you had to direction. fight yeah. to find it. You, yeah. you had to fight
0: yeah if anyone ever tells me what to wear mm. honestly like if I I remember there was a couple of times on fashion shoots or whatever and they're like the the celebrity or whatever like you have to everyone else on set's got to wear like red or black or something and I would I would come in orange I mean there is like no way Mm -hmm. I cannot be told Mm -hmm. what to wear Mm -hmm. like ever Mm -hmm. and it's it's just all I totally feel that I will do the exact opposite and when I was in school I used to also same thing like it was kind of like private school and high school and you could wear on friday you could wear jeans or something and i would like wear them yeah and every other day or like and well yesterday i mean yesterday I, d- I made fun of you because
2: i'm um, oh, like right. you're 60 years old and you're still so identified with your your six- inner 16 year old rebel that yeah. she went to lunch with her dad and would uh, at, at Ivy the Ivy princeton club. club i love that. the princeton club in midtown which is all suits and she wore this ratty raggy bandana she's wearing now oh, and like God. like a just a torn the, the most unfinished club outfit. I was like, mom, you're going to give your your father a fucking heart attack. Can you just like maybe just not do that? But the thing is that
0: I'm not even doing it purposely. It's just <laughs> mm. I couldn't. Mm. <laughs> do it any other way. This is what I felt like yesterday. That's it. This is how I feel. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, I would I would cry in a corner. That's also that was my whole experience. That
1: was my whole experience. Like I didn't know, but this is how I felt. And this is what I was going to I'm do. either going to yeah. be
0: myself or I'm going to cry in the corner. all day Exactly.
1: This. Exactly. <laughs> and like clinging to myself or who, what I thought like myself was was so important because I for the longest time I was deprived of that.
2: I really just want to kind of get into like like the beginning of your of like struggling Mm -hmm. with the mental health and like being hospitalized being a few times in your teens and like I'm so impressed and so inspired by how like um honest you are about it now and how self-aware you are now and and brave to talk about these things and like just your more of your journey with that Mm -hmm. and like um more of your journey with owning the mental health struggles that you have and also with learning about what they are and even knowing how to identify them the way that you now Mm -hmm. are so like literate and articulate about um I don't know. It's a big question, but I guess I'm just that's kind of where I'm trying to go. I don't there know. just
1: needs to be a revolution in the way that we talk about mental health. Mm-hmm. There, there just needs to be. Mm-hmm. It's been across the entire world. No mm-hmm. one, no one. There's not a place where mm-hmm. uh, people openly talk about it. And it's it's I'm I'm fucking I'm sick of it. Mm-hmm. I'm sick of it people deal with this people deal with this daily people lose lives mm-hmm. um and
2: was there like a straw that broke a camel's back Where you like were you ashamed for a while uh, and then... yeah I'm still ashamed right. I mean
1: I'm still on the daily ashamed right. I mean I won't even tell you my other diagnosis right like I, I'm not just depressed I have another I have a whole other thing and um I'm still like grappling with like do I tell like usually I'll feel I'll feel like my closest friends know all mm-hmm. of my diagnoses but mm-hmm. um I'm like, do I, do I say it publicly? Um, I, that I still don't right. know because it, I'm already, I already feel so vulnerable online just mm-hmm. because I have to deal with so many people and their mm-hmm. baggage and their opinions or their, um, inc- you know, just their lack of awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I got so many messages when I, when I was talking about my struggle, especially recently, there were very, uh, Mean-spirited, and all. I, I think what I came to realize is like these conversations are bound to make people uncomfortable because it's the first time we're having them, mm-hmm. and that's actually a good sign. Mm-hmm. Um, it's supposed to. To the outsider, I'm, I'm like a person who's popular in social media, and I, I'm I'm attractive, and I dress well, and I have friends and like, what could possibly be wrong? What could I have possibly been through? Mm -hmm. And to this day, I mean, like every day I get messages from people who accuse me of faking my mental illness and my GoFundMe because they see me having a good time and people don't realize that those two things can exist concurrently. Like I can have a good time and still be a mentally ill person. And I, um,
0: it's, it's very complex yeah. and nuanced. Yeah. So
2: when you say... Um, you've you said a couple of times, like, um, what hap- you've said what happened to you recently. Can you tell us more about what you mean by that?
1: Um, yeah, I, I attempted suicide for the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, time is kind of a strange thing because I, my concept of time is has kind of been warped for the last month, but I, I think it was three weeks ago now. Mm. Um, and my friend veronica somehow had keys to her spare bathroom where i was and managed to come in on time and call the ems and so i survived um what was like going on in your life at that moment um i just moved back from berlin i so th- the other thing about how we handle mental illness and depression is like even the treatments that are available are so subpar and archaic in my mind. Like it's, um, when they give you a new medication, they never know if it's going to work. You have to try it for a few months and see, de- like wade through the horrible side effects and see if it's worth it ultimately. And so I, I've, I've tried so many different kinds of antidepressants and I was, on this one antidepressant that was actually finally starting to sort of work and I was starting to feel like a person again but I had a really bad seizure um so I had to discontinue that one when was that this was um right before I moved to Berlin Mm -hmm. Um, I was having a stoop sale and I was like getting rid of all of my possessions to like kind of cleanse yeah cleanse and supplement like money to Mm. for the move itself um and i like had the seizure while going up and down the stairs and thankfully like there were people there who were able to care for me and um
0: from the medication
1: yeah from the, it was a combination of the medication and like um i think some drinks that i had and like dehydration i think you know it was a but basically it was, a it was a, yeah it was basically it. primarily the medication um and then um for a few months i went without it um Realized that was a really bad idea. I can't just not be on meds. For I know a lot of people feel weird about medication, but listen, you you can't like some people need it. Mm-hmm. It's not a big mm-hmm. deal. Um, I'm sure meditation like meditation w- works for some people. Other things work, right. but some people actually need medication. In for sure, it, it shouldn't it. be a shame. Um, yeah, yeah, it's like you wouldn't tell a diabetic not to take right. insulin. I mean, Absolutely. it's just. Um, so I, I started this new, okay, newer, um, antidepressant just a few months ago and it, and I experienced mania for the first time, hmm. which if you've never experienced mania and you're experiencing it the first, first the first time, it's a very like, utterly bewildering feeling. So I mean, I didn't even you know, try to describe it. Yeah. I can't even describe I mean, yeah. I didn't even know at the time that there was something wrong or erratic about my behavior. I thought I was being normal. Um, which is the craziest thing. Um so on a whim, I broke up with my ex, I broke up with my partner, I ended all of my friendships um in Berlin and moved back to New York and during just, the manic during episode. the manic episode. Um and then that subsided and um so now I'm back to not being on meds and um I'm trying to figure out what's next for me, and uh, do I want to experiment with another antidepressant? And what if
0: that have know. they ever worked?
1: Uh, well, they were. I mean, the, the that one that gave you yeah, the seizure, but other than that, no.
0: How did you feel on that one? The one that gave you the
1: seizures? I. There was there was the cloud was kind of lifted, dissipating. It was slowly dissipating, and I felt more present. I could be sitting with a person any time of the day and really feel like I was there. Like I'm on this chair. I'm with you. I can feel that uh, I was. Yeah, it was a very um, just clarity, just mm. clarity. And um, yeah, well, you know. So was the
2: like looking back like um, other other than the manic episode, would you not have moved back? To, I mean, like I, I don't Berlin know. Who knows. I mean, yeah.
1: uh, Berlin was definitely never a permanent. Right. I mean, this is New York's my home. I'm Mm going to come back here no matter what. But yeah, it was definitely a premature move. It was abrupt. Yeah, it was abrupt, for sure. I mean, I moved without any of my things. Like now I'm, you know, I didn't even consider that I'd be homeless. Like that's not even something I thought about. I was just, I'm going to break up with you and I don't
0: want to be friends with you anymore. And I felt like, I felt like I could just go around doing that. I felt, you know, and... So what exactly led to the suicide attempt? It was com- getting off the meds and being here. and Yeah, realizing- and just being
1: really depressed and being, I thought I had nothing. I i thought I had, I was like, well, I had this home. I had this um, partner who loved me unconditionally and they were, they were, it wasn't perfect. It was not a perfect relationship by any means. He had his faults. Um, but I felt like what will work for me? this is all hopeless, this is all futile. It was this, like, feeling of mm-hmm. utter futility. Um, and also just, I had just given up, I think. Mm. I was, I even had this thought that I love myself too much to force myself through a lifetime of suffering. Mm. Like, I thought I had had enough. And it was a very calm, not a methodic approach. I just had the thought, What I was completely sober, um, just took all the pills I had. Um. Just I remember losing consciousness and
0: in the bathroom. Yeah,
1: like. in the in the bathroom, and I'm not a particularly I'm not religious. Um. But I, I did I did find myself having like a conversation with God to forgive me when that was happening. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, like that was the last thing I remember. Um, I think that's so and, incredibly fascinating that you felt. That you loved yourself too much. That, yeah, that because people usually feeling. think it's
1: because, oh, it's because I think I'm worthless or like, I don't, I don't. I know that I have a lot to offer. I know every you know, everything nice that you can say about me. I, I know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm still. Suffering. Suffering. And there's, n- n- I don't know what to do mm. is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And,
2: um. So then what you just woke up and you were like in a hospital yeah, and
1: then I was in the hospital, and <laughs> that was a whole other thing and because
2: then they put you back in the mental in the in ward, the psych ward yeah.
1: and um, Elmhurst again no, this was Woodhall, which is also equally horrible, like I think it's worse actually um I was reading Yelp reviews after I came out for the hospital, and uh, a patient overheard one of the nurses calling them inmates um, uh, yeah, I witnessed just abhorrent behavior just people like really mentally ill people schizophrenics being manhandled um but also the facilities themselves were horrible like we didn't have socks and it was extremely dirty there were there were, there were like there were like blood stains on the wall and there was um uh, it It was all, it was all just, it was, it was, uh, people were sleeping on chairs in the, in the hallway, in the waiting room for like two days before even getting a bed. And, um, like I said, it's punitive. Right. It's, it's all about like, when can you get out? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, we'll hold you here temporarily until we think that you're you're, like a bad person. Yeah. Um, Yeah. How did you feel
2: like in reflecting in that or how do you feel? Or how did you feel? Like reflecting. I on that woke moment? up and I was
1: instantly like, "Well, wow, that didn't work," and you know, um, a little disappointed, but immediately like, "Okay, I have to get out of here" because I knew that place wasn't going to help me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, um, so and I had the upper hand of like I, I'm a I'm a smart person I'm, i can enunciate so i was able to talk to doctors and convince them that i can leave and i don't you know and maybe i shouldn't have like i don't think i was like really i don't think i was i i don't think they should have discharged me but also that's not the place where one heals heals definitely not mm-hmm. um how do you feel now uh every hour is different but right now like when i'm with you guys I'm um, we're having these conversations I feel really good I feel really good right now um, mm-hmm. I feel calm I've had like a really lovely past week um, I've realized who my real friends are through this through this um, seeing who's there and I'm surrounded by really really lovely people I'm so grateful mm. for my friends
0: like my friends are my family. I'm so. Cra- mm-hmm. like, I'm sorry. Go I'm so, everyone cries in these. I'm so. I'm I mean, just, everyone cries in yeah. style like you interviews. It's part yeah. of. It. Mm-hmm. I'm just yeah.
2: very. I'm just very grateful for the for the people in my life. What do you feel are like, um, some of the things that the people in your life have done that have felt like most supportive to you?
1: Uh, everything from providing shelter when I moved back and I didn't have a place to live, mm-hmm. feeding me, making sure I left the house if I was like totally you know depleted of energy and uh, Mm -hmm. just being like sharing space with me like not even talking just knowing that I needed someone to be there and just seeing yeah unconditional just
0: you know that is what you need yeah that is what you need it is what you need when you've been when you when you've had so much conditional love and Mm -hmm. so damaging and Mm -hmm. all you need is in my opinion Mm -hmm. is unconditional Mm -hmm. love and someone Mm -hmm. to give that to you and it took me such a long time
1: to even be receptive to that kind of love because if you've never Mm -hmm. had it it's very foreign it's Mm -hmm. very scary and you don't think you deserve it and i'm slowly it's still it's still happening i'm still trying to tell myself that i deserve it and uh, receiving is a
0: huge hard thing Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. i think that's probably very common for a lot of people to to let yourself receive yeah was
2: this the first time in the last month that you've been so, um, public about, um,
1: I've, I've always been vocal about my depression and, and I guess, Mm -hmm. um, on a smaller scale, but Mm -hmm. I've never been, um, uh, like I'd never posted videos of myself disassociating or crying or, um, completely dehydrated without water for two days lying in bed um, unable to move like just catatonic state and you know that really shocked people and people are really ab- abrasive and I, I guess w- when they kind of see you as a commodity when you have a following and they they don't ask you questions in the way that they should and mm-hmm. people will they'll be very They think curt. you're not lonely yeah. because yeah. of the yeah. thousands of yeah words or and they'll be like why are you posting this like you should get off your social media you should people are like don't you have friends who are there for you and i'm like yes i do like you have no idea like why are you making these assumptions about this person that you don't know it, but also like i'm doing this deliberately not only to cope there are worse coping mechanisms but also to show other people that they're not fucking alone totally um they need to see themselves mirrored they need to see themselves reflected and I, i'm tired had of- you seen it
0: no. When you were younger.
1: No. I had never seen that. Right. And it would have, God knows, it would have helped so much as a teen, as a young The adult. validation. Yeah. Is it like yeah. you were saying, like that, yeah.
0: that empty, yeah. I mean, that that empty, empty hole of validation that you don't, didn't because you never yeah. got it. Yeah. But to have the validation yeah. from someone else that you're not, cra- yeah. you know, that you're, yeah. that your feelings are valid yeah. and you're not alone. And anymore. I've
1: gotten hundreds, I'm, and I'm hundreds of messages from people with those thoughts Mm -hmm.
2: like
1: and um yeah I guess the thing with like depersonalizing and disassociating is like I don't even recognize my importance to other people sometimes like Mm. sometimes I don't think I'm capable of affecting anyone in any way like I don't think I can hurt them or inspire them or you know anything else and this was a very opening eye-opening experience for me is because I really realized that I have an impact on others and I want to use this platform that I have to really elevate that well mm-hmm. because it's
0: very 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 brave thank mm-hmm. you
1: very
2: brave and so what yeah. came what was how did you come up with the idea to um crowdfund your therapy which I, um, I didn't think... do it
0: someone did it for oh. me,
2: you know right. a, a total stranger just made one for me that's amazing um a total stranger yeah. saw a post of yours yeah and th- they were yeah, what and,
1: did you write about how you couldn't afford therapy right yeah now? because the specific therapy that I need right um, it's not commonly practiced mm-hmm. and also I have Medicaid, so it's not, right. it's just not a, a good doctor is right. going to. Right. Yeah. That's so, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> really. I have. I had a total Did stranger. Did you start dying. going yet or you're still um, No, I'm going to wait. I'm gonna wait, I'm on a wait list. Mm.
0: And so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. It's so important for the world to understand that being happy all the time in this kind of like, fake kind of, Mm. you know, buying into the media culture and fashion culture, whatever it is that everyone's buying into, I buy this bag, I buy this lipstick, I get to this party, you know, I'm happy culture that we live in. Mm. I really truly believe underneath it all that all of these people are as or not, or possibly even more troubled and, and, or as, you know, unhappy and <laughs> no for, sh- and, and in other words that like, what is unhappiness yeah. and like, what is happiness? Yeah. Yeah. And because I'm sitting here with you and, um, and you wanted to not live anymore as of three weeks ago, you know, at, at a point three weeks ago, but to me, I'm sitting here with an extremely Deep and warm and beautiful human who who does have so much to offer and to give and is so full of life and I don't know, it just makes me think like what the fuck is happiness and what is unhappiness yeah. I don't know you yeah. know it's just like it's all up for grabs yeah and 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 we and and this this sort of obsession with being happy um yeah is yeah. is making people very unhappy
1: yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. That's very important.
2: What do you think is, um, one of the, the uh, a big risk you've taken in your life or the biggest risk you've taken?
1: Leaving home, mm. like leaving my, my family. Um, because that's not, that's unheard of where I'm from. Like the culture that I come from, uh, like the girl never leaves the house mm-hmm. until she's married, mm-hmm. you know? And I was the first person who did that. How old were you? I was 19 and I did it because I absolutely had to and that's we don't have time to really get mm. into that but um, yeah I was thrust into this world without like any resources like I I didn't know how to do anything um, I, and I, I basically taught myself everything there is to learn and I taught myself with the help of like the friends that I've acquired throughout the years but they've really guided me and I learned how to become like a whole fucking person like mm-hmm. a this grown woman that I am today, I, I feel like I did it all on my own because there was no one that raised me and I should be proud of myself mm-hmm. for that. And I'm saying it now. I'm proud of myself.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does self-acceptance mean to you?
1: Uh, self-acceptance to me is recognizing your duality as a human being and accepting the grimy bits as well as the good bits and realizing they both make up who you are and just to be more forgiving when you do fuck up and when you we're just we're all figuring this out together and especially now it's such an exciting time where we're having all of these dialogues not just about mental illness but I mean everything the me too movement everything it's all so new and there's not like a there's not like a protocol that's been established you know so we're all having these dialogues right now it's all new we're all figuring it out and just have compassion for yourself and for others because everyone's trying you Mm -hmm. know this was lovely thank you so much and thank you for trusting us and being
0: so open yes thank you for trusting us and (laughs) being the person and being so incredibly brave really because Actually, we wouldn't be changing the world if it wasn't for people like you. Thank you so much. So that's, you know, that's what it takes. Thank you. That's been a pleasure.
2: We hope you were inspired by this episode.
0: Until next week, that's it from me, Elisa, And me, Lily. If you agree that facades separate us and being radically honest brings us together, help spread the movement for radical self-acceptance by sharing this episode and subscribing to our podcast.
2: You can also watch our videos by subscribing to our YouTube channel and following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook using the handle at style
0: That's the letter U instead of the word you
2: and check out our book. True style is what's underneath the self acceptance revolution
0: on Amazon or at a local bookstore near you. We can't skip ahead to a happy ending or live inside a photoshopped image or an Instagram filter. There's no finding oneself when glossing over the truth. A note to all listeners that if you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255.
2: Hi guys, I'm Kyla Coleman. You might know me from Cycle 24 of America's Next Top Model. I have a brand new podcast called Not So Glamorous. On this podcast, I'll be taking off the eyeshadow, trading in my heels for some comfy shoes, And I'll tell you all about what happens before, during, and after the runway. Each week, I'll be covering a different topic in the world of modeling on Not So Glamorous. Find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you soon.
0: This is Candice Lowry from Persister. Persister is a podcast where I interview badass women who've broken down barriers to really make a name for themselves. I'm talking to actors, entrepreneurs, and just women who know how to get stuff done and can help you learn how to get ahead. You can listen to Persister on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.